0: Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host Monica Hadley, and with me today is my mother and co-host Caroline Coburn.
1: Hello, everyone. <laughs> I hope you're having a good day today.
0: And we are uh, enduring thunderstorms today, which we're very happy to be enduring because, man, do we need the rain? We
1: need the rain. <laughs> oh, yeah, we sure do need the rain. Yeah. You
0: know, I, I saw recently someone. It was kind of a joke that one of the things that Midwesterners cannot um help themselves stop themselves from saying is boy did we need that rain <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so caroline can you introduce our guest today
1: yes thank you the uh, the book we're talking about today is the paris deception and it's by bryn turnbull and bryn is an internationally best selling author of the woman before Wallace, equipped with a Master of Letters in Creative Writing from the University of St. Andrews, a Master of Professional Communication from Toronto Metropolitan University, and a bachelor's degree in English Literature from McGill University. And she focuses on finding stories of women who are lost within the cracks of a historical record. And she lives in Toronto. And this book is quite amazing. So let's get to it. The Paris Deception. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Bryn.
0: Oh,
2: thank you both for having me on. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be chatting with you.
0: So this is um, not your first published historical fiction. Is it number three, number four? Where are we in your in your journey?
2: Yeah, it's number three. So number my first three. book was The Woman Before Wallace, uh, which was about uh, the woman that Edward VIII had an affair with prior to Wallace Simpson. Um my second book was The Last Grand Duchess, which chronicles the fall of the Romanov dynasty through the eyes of Nicholas and Alexander's eldest daughter, Olga. And now, uh, yeah, we're on to the Paris Deception, number three.
0: <laughs> so obviously you, there's a focus on Europe and around yeah. the end, the early part of the 20th century. Or the first yeah. half, let's say the first half of the 20th century. <laughs> so what draws you to that location and that time period and and is that where you plan to stay or are you going to branch out from there
2: (laughs) well you know I've always been like I've always loved European history it's always been a fascination of mine and uh, particularly women's stories within that context and so I kind of follow the character I would say uh, who who draws me to the time the place um, the story and so with this book. This is my first book where it's not a fully historical character as my right. main character, right. which has been a bit of a different uh, different kind of writing process, which has been really, really fun. But yeah, it's. I, I think for now it's Europe. Um, I do have <laughs> other books in mind that come on this side of the pond, so we'll see. <laughs> so
0: <I'm>, I was <laughs> curious about that, the fact that this was not that your character, your main characters are not actual bi- people mm-hmm. because one of the other characters in the book, um, Rose yeah. is a real person. And why did you choose to write about someone who worked for her rather than write about her?
2: So, you know, it's, It's sort of one of those things when I start writing a book and I start doing the research, I find myself very drawn to specific characters. And I was certainly drawn to Rose. However, in her life, Rose was very retiring and very, you know, she was a a bit of an invisible person, so to speak. She was this resistance operative who worked within a museum, the Jeu du Pomme, which is where the Nazis took all of the art that they looted from Jewish families. And Rose Basically, passed information on to the resistance about all of these art collections and about the activities of the Germans. And so, after the war, um, the Monuments Men and um, other organizations were able to kind of repatriate a lot of that art to these Jewish families. But in the course of kind of doing the research, I did think potentially have of having Rose as the main character. But it kind of became clear as I wrote that she didn't want to be the main character of this <laughs> book. I know that that sounds a little silly, but Yeah, she just, she didn't want to be the main character. And I ended up deciding to focus this book on a particular collection that was taken to that museum called the Degenerate Collection, Degenerate Art. Um, And when I knew that that was where the focus of the book, I wanted that focus to be, I kind of knew that I had to pull pull it away from Rose's real time war exploits a little bit um, to make room for that particular focus.
0: Why don't you sort of give an overview of what the Paris Deception
2: is about? Yeah, absolutely. So the Paris Deception, it's about art theft and forgery in Nazi-occupied Europe. And it follows the exploits of two characters, um, Sophie and Fabienne, who are sisters-in-law at serious odds, as they team up to protect and safeguard uh, a specific collection of artwork that passes through Nazi hands um, in Paris during the war. So Sophie Bront is our first protagonist, and she's a conservator who works in this museum alongside Rose Valland, um, restoring works of art that have been brought to the museum and have been basically mishandled by the Nazis. And she very quickly realizes when her museum is taken over, she realizes that there's this one particular collection that's brought into the museum called Degenerate Art. So Degenerate Art is basically not not represent not representational so we're talking modernism cubism um, impressionism sort of modern art modern for the times and hitler hated that art the nazis hated that art they uh, deemed it ideologically impure and in germany they had already taken all of these works of degenerate art out of the public collections in germany and burned them Um, yes so So Sophie realizes that this is the fate that is potentially going to befall all of this degenerate art that is passing through the museum. So she resolves to save it, and she enlists the help of her estranged sister-in-law, Fabienne, who is a bohemian artist uh, living in France at the time. And together they team up, and they start replacing these works of degenerate art in the museum with very skillful forgeries. And everything is going well. Everything, they think that they're, you know, they're going to pull this off. Until that collection comes to the special attention of Herman Goering's handpicked art dealer, Conrad uh, Richter, who takes a very special interest in this uh, collection. And Sophie and Fabian's work gets uh, a whole lot more challenging. Mm, wow. I,
0: what about this story? Like, how did you find this story, essentially? Because to be honest, I didn't even had never even heard of this museum. And yeah. I've been to Paris a number of times. I've been to all the big museums. I've never even heard of this one.
2: <laughs> yeah, this is – it's actually – it's quite a small museum. Um, it's located in the Jardin de Tuileries. So um, if you're in the Jardin de Tuileries, there's the Orangerie, which is where right. Monet's water lilies are. Right. Um, the Jeu du Palme is the museum that is directly opposite it, and it's kind of the Orangerie's mirror image. Okay. And it's, it's very small. It has always been a museum that was dedicated to modern art. Um, before the war, that was where basically the Louvre uh, and France's public collections, national collections, housed all of their um, modern art. And so this is a museum, um, you know, I, I found this story through a number of different threads, actually, that kind of came together. Um, one was through the story of Rose Vallande. Um, and I, I've long been interested in her story and her work as a resistance operative. So I knew about her, um, and I knew that that would be kind of an interesting place to set a story of resistance. Um, I also had heard about the exploits of a Dutch forger in 1943 named Han van Meegeren, who sold a fake Vermeer to Hermann Göring. And at the end of the war was brought up on charges of war profiteering. And he ended up in a courtroom recreating this lost Vermeer that he had sold to Hermann Göring at an exorbitant price. And so I thought it would be interesting to kind of work in that museum and bring in that art forgery aspect. And uh, yeah, the book kind of took shape from, from those two kind of sources. Interesting.
1: There's just so much, there's just so much here that, uh, you know, because the the Germans, the fact that they were able to, to, to steal all this artwork from, Mm -hmm. from uh, people, it's just, it's amazing that they were able to get away with it. Of course, that's because, Yeah. (laughs) because of the time, Yeah.
2: There are always cases that still come up today of um, this Nazi looted art. Um, these art collections that belong to uh, families that they were taken from all across Europe, um, Jewish families predominantly. And to this day, we are still having cases where this art is being found. There was a case in, I think it was 2014, where the son of a an art dealer who worked with the Germans, his apartment was looted and they found I think it was 1,300 works of art that had been stolen from Jewish families, and so this is all still very, very present day. Um, we also see a bunch of, you know, there, this artwork we, occasionally comes up in museum collections, and we learn that it has been, it was, it was looted from Jewish families, and so that really interested me, and it's, it's, it's a historical injustice that still has yet to be put right to this day. I think there's a um, hundred thousand works of art that are still unaccounted for that rightfully belong to um, to these Jewish families that they were stolen from.
1: Well, of course, so, so many of the Jewish families, <coughs> excuse me, so many of the Jewish families were, were murdered in, you know, concentration yep. camps. So that, you know, that's the problem.
0: So, yeah. So what is the, what kind of is the protocol seen? if, if a, a piece of artwork is identified but the family was wiped out. What, you know, what is considered the right thing to do?
2: Do you know? I mean, that, that is a good question. What they, what usually happens, I mean, there are certain organizations that are working to this day to restore this artwork to its rightful owners. Um, The ERR project is one and the monuments, men and women foundation is another and I believe what happens is they look for the closest living relatives. They look for the closest descendants. Right. And um, they try to restore that the artwork back to uh, its owners that way. But this one, um, this one organization, the ERR Project, thanks to Rose Valland, they know every work of art that passed through that museum. So they have a database of all this artwork, and they're still working to try and restore unpatriated uh, art back to its owners.
0: So they know what went through, but they don't necessarily know where it
2: ended up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly, because what happened was basically the Nazis used this museum as a, as a shopping mall. <laughs> so they would bring these collections in. They would set up the museum as an art, you know, as a gallery, of course, because that's what it was. And high-ranking Nazis, most notably Hermann Goering, would come through the museum and pick which pieces he liked off of the walls, and they would send them back into Germany. So they did that with the art, Uh, with the Degenerate collection specifically, they uh, would trade it for works of art that they felt were more ideologically pure. They would either trade it or they did end up burning a lot of it. But again, so those works of art that were traded to other art dealers, those are the ones that are particularly difficult to figure out where they went because the art dealer, once it left the Jeux de Pomme, it was out of Rose's sphere of influence, so to speak. And so that's where we don't necessarily know where those ended up. But did that art, you know, did that art dealer keep it? Did he sell it on? Where is it today?
0: So there's a list then of all those artworks. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that wherever some of those missing artworks are, the current owners know that they're on that list.
2: Not necessarily. Really? Okay. Um, I think in some, I think in a lot of cases they do, but in a lot of cases, I mean, think about how artwork gets passed down, right? Somebody True. in your family dies, a niece or a nephew ends up with a work of art. They don't necessarily know the provenance of it. Um, so that's where it gets tricky because some people don't, like Did g- they genuinely don't know that that art was looted. The further out we get from the history of it, the harder it is to figure out what that provenance was. But I would think if you and...
0: Well, of course, not all of those works of art were by known artists, by people that were, that are famous. Mm-hmm. There were probably a lot of works that were by beginning artists or people who didn't end up being famous in the long run. But if you inherited something from, you know, a Vermeer or whatever, whatever it, it might mm-hmm. have been, you'd think that you would want to research the provenance of it and, um, and would quickly You'd think so you would think and then <laughs> then you know then it's an ethical choice for that person do i but the thing is you can't probably cannot sell it publicly right no
2: so, no i wouldn't think so
0: yeah so i wonder what the um i wonder if anyone has set up a way that those people that someone who has possession of that can donate it to a nonprofit organization that then restores it to the original owner and get a tax deduction for doing that. (laughs) That would be a way to encourage it and and allow, you know, and maybe, um, yeah, that would be a way to encourage the repatriation of some of those things.
2: Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh well, that's that's my uh, tax preparer <laughs> mind at work. So <laughs> You're listening to Writers Voices and our guest today is Bryn Turnbull, author of The Paris Deception. Um did you know a lot about art before
2: you started writing this book? Mm. Uh to be honest with you, I didn't. Uh you know, I I always loved art. I've appreciated it, but This book was a very challenging one to write because I had characters who have very specialized skill sets, right? I've got a character who restores artwork for a living and I have a character who forges art and is a very talented artist. And I would love to say that I have any talent with a paintbrush. I absolutely do not. So this was all very (laughs) new for me. Um, But I was really, really lucky in doing the research for this book because I ended up connecting with a group of conservators out of New York, who very generously gave me plenty of their time, let me come to their art uh, conservation labs, and let me really kind of question them about what their job is, what they do, what their, you know, what chemicals they use, what, you know, what's the philosophy behind art conservation, and how is it different now than what it was in the 1940s. So having that subject matter expertise was absolutely invaluable, in kind of giving Sophie that grounded professionalism that I hope, I hope I brought to her. (laughs) Well, certainly
0: from someone who knows nothing about it, it was very convincing and particularly the, the whole, how you sort of um, incorporated Fabienne's Fabienne. How do you pronounce her name? Oh, Fabienne Fabienne Fabienne. Fabienne's um, work in the jewelry atelier, is that how you say that? I don't even. <laughs> yeah. Atelier. At- atelier. Um, it, using bakelite and, and also the development of acrylic paint as yeah. tools of forgery. That was very convincing. Now, in your afternote, you write that you maybe played around a little bit with the the historical timing of available that those things might've been available, yeah. particularly the acrylic, but um, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that and how you got that idea to incorporate that in into the
2: yeah. plot. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when you sell a book, um, you know, when, when you sell a book and in those early stages of development, you kind of go, okay. And then they forged a work of art and that's great. And <laughs> Soon enough, you get to the point where you think, oh, gosh, how are they actually forging it? And initially, the method of forgery that I wanted them to use was a historical one. And it was used by this the Dutch forger that I mentioned, Han van Meegren, who actually would bake bakelite, which is an early thermoplastic. He would, he would mix it with his paints, bake the painting, and then bake the painting in an oven. And that would harden it because oil paint takes a long, long time to dry. It can take months to dry. So that's the trouble with forging using oil paint is, you know, it's it's the timing of, of having that paint dry on the canvas. And so initially I thought, okay, well, I'll use that method of forgery because it worked for this forger in 1943. Unfortunately, the further I got into researching art, researching paint, researching methods of forgery, I realized that that would have aged the paintings too much because a Vermeer, Uh, Vermeer painted in the I believe it was the 15th and 16th century 16th century yeah 16th century and the paintings that my characters were looking to forge would have been turn of the century um so only 20 30 maybe 40 years old it would have overaged the paint and it would have overaged the painting and that would have been unconvincing to an art connoisseur so I ended up kind of looking into okay well how when does acrylic paint come on the market when is that commercially available? And acrylic paint was actually developed in the in uh, it was the late 1930s by a German chemist named Otto Röhm, and he initially conceived it for industrial uses. So we're talking like painting houses, painting airplanes, that sort of thing. And there were some artists in who did use acrylic paint in the 1940s, but um, it wasn't really widely commercially available. So I was able to find out that art conservationists actually developed their own brand of petroleum-based acrylic paint, oil paint using an acrylic binder um, using petroleum, and that was how they kind of that was how acrylic paint sort of got started. And so Sophie has all of this background in the book, and so she starts mixing it herself. Which, uh, yeah, it was uh, that took me that took me a little while to get to. I have to say. I bet, I bet, <laughs> but that that
0: was really that level of detail is what made this so convincing. I was, you know, I I honestly thought this was all completely historically factual and and I I wish it (laughs) were. I wish it had been, I wish they had done all those forgeries and fooled the Nazis (laughs) and saved all those paintings.
1: (laughs) Wow. I read somewhere that, that, um, the Nazis kept very precise records. And so they knew the names of all the people that they exterminated and maybe that was yeah. how they were able to track things down too. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's the only, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, they yeah. kept, they kept these at the du Palm. they kept these big ledgers that had, you know, it was like, and, and if you go on the ERR project, you can actually see these uh, records Um, They have them, they have them online. And so, you know, it tells you the artist, it tells you the size of the painting, it tells you what it was painted on, what kind of medium was used. And it also does tell you who the owner was. So they kept all those records. Um, So we do know who these paintings belonged to rightfully uh, before they were stolen. Wow. Wow, That's that's, amazing. (laughs) It
0: it, it certainly is. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about the Bakelite. Cause I found that really yeah. interesting too, was, is this, did this actually happen that these high end jewelry makers in during World War II switched from using real gems to using plastic basically?
2: Yeah. I mean, and that was a switch that didn't happen as a result of the second world war um, that happened earlier. Oh. Uh, the great depression actually was one of the, it, it, you know, it that was one of the times where, uh, fashion designers and jewelry designers were looking at different ways of bringing in different markets and not necessarily focusing on the ultra, ultra high-end market. And so Bakelite was one of these solutions that they hit on. And so Bakelite, as I mentioned, it's this early thermoplastic, which really can mimic the look of, you know, it, it can mimic the look of of natural stone. Uh, it can mimic the look of coral, jet, ivory. Um, and and I mean, people were doing really, really beautiful things with it. You could Uh, You you could form it into these lovely, striking pieces of jewelry. Uh, You could carve it, which was really wonderful. But Bakelite also was used, you know, it was kind of a a miracle product at the time. Like, you know, not dissimilar to how we use plastic now. Yeah. Uh, It was in telephones. It was in poker chips. It was, you know, it it was used everywhere. It was in cars. Um, But it was also used as a, as, you know, to to create these beautiful objects of art uh, and this beautiful jewelry. So, now, is yep. that particular form of plastic Bakelite
0: still still being used in jewelry, you know?
2: Not – I don't believe it's being used anymore. You can find Bakelite jewelry um, – every once in a while you can find Bakelite jewelry in, uh, you know, estate sales, in vintage shops. It's astronomically expensive, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> uh, it's very, very expensive, and it's very beautiful. I've seen some absolutely gorgeous pieces, and I've, I've been – looking because I want to buy myself like a really nice bangle or something. Oh, yes. <laughs> made out of bakelite to like commemorate this book. But I, I've not found anything. Oh. I haven't found the right piece yet. But oh, yeah, wow. you can still find it occasionally. <laughs> mm.
0: You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our guest today is Bryn Turnbull, author of The Paris Deception.
2: Bryn, would you like to read a little bit from the book? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Well, I, you know what, I was thinking maybe I could read the prologue. Perfect. Just to kind of get, you know, get into the, get into the book. So the prologue, um, it takes place a year before the events of the book itself, and it involves uh, the burning of degenerate art in Germany. So my character Sophie is witnessing the destruction of Germany's degenerate art, which kicks off the whole story. Uh, So, March 1939, Berlin. It took only seconds for the paintings to catch a light, but hour for the flames to die into ash. Oil, after all, had a tendency to burn. It smoked and blistered like skin, layers of paint peeling back upon itself as the pigments, yellow ochre and cadmium red, vermilion and chartreuse and burnt sienna, blackened into char. Works that had once been beautiful were reduced to their basest parts. Lit by the flames, they were nothing more than composite pieces of destruction chemicals and flax and wood, each burning into nothingness as the flames licked ever higher. From her place in the shadows of the moonless night, Sophie watched a book sail through the air, its cover opening like the wings of a bird. It hung suspended above the smoke before arcing into the conflagration, its leaves curling as flames kissed the spine. She looked at the man who had thrown it. He stared stone-faced into the bonfire before bending over the wheelbarrow to pick up another accelerant, his fireman's badge glinting as he fed the flames. Had he been alone, Sophie would have run up, pulled the wheelbarrow from his grasp, saved what she could. But this was state-sanctioned destruction, and 20 other firefighters were feeding the bonfire too a 50-foot monster fueled by a generation's worth of art. Did it bother him, she wondered, watching his sweaty face transform into gargoyle features by the flickering light, to be feeding a fire instead of putting it out. His professional solicitousness suggested that it did not. If he was revolted by the work he was doing, he didn't let it show. The stench of burning hate reached Sophie's throat, and though she retched at the acrid taste, she did not turn away. Like everyone else watching from behind the line of soldiers' rifles, she wasn't there out of morbid fascination, but for posterity, committing the frightening scene to memory. Thousands of works of art, millions of dollars, destroyed. Complex cubist paintings, passionist expressionist works, belligerent surrealist pastiches, and baffling Dadaist de- collages, all gone in the space of a night. Like so many others watching, curators and connoisseurs and restorers, the artists and authors who had not yet gone underground, Sophie had been summoned by a whisper network of sympathetic specialists still operating within Germany. Despite her vow never to step foot in the Reich again, she had come to bear witness to Hitler's destruction of Germany's cultural heritage. The last time Sophie had seen the paintings had been in Munich, two years ago, at the opening of the Entartete Kunst exhibition. She'd attended out of professional curiosity, quelling her fears about traveling to Germany in order to see the odious concept in action. Entartete Kunst, degenerate art, had been as horrible as she'd anticipated, a master collection of modern art displayed in cruel chaos, jingoistic propaganda condemning the pieces as the work of sick minds, Jewish conspiracies and homosexual perversion. Pulled from public galleries across Germany, each work of art was introduced in deliberately obtuse terms by a prim tour guide who wrinkled his nose in a moue of distaste as he recited scandalous stories about the artists on display. She should have known then what was in store for each and every work of modern art in Germany's museums and libraries. She had on good authorities that many of the pieces had been sold to New World collectors, willing to turn a blind eye to the fact that their purchases would swell the coffers of the Nazi regime, but she never dreamed the Nazis would discover what they couldn't sell. That anything which didn't reflect Hitler's twisted ideas about the Reich and its people would be consigned to the flames. The very notion went against the core of Sophie's being. The sun had begun to rise, pale in a grey sky, by the time the fireman turned away from the ashes, but Sophie stayed rooted where she was. She turned to the man beside her. His cheeks were streaked with ash, but for a runnel in the grime where tears had fallen. Sophie guessed she was similarly marked, and though she didn't know him, she walked over and threaded her hand through his. He looked down, surprised by the intrusion, but then, slack-faced, met her gaze. Was he an artist, she wondered watching his work go up in flames, a gallerist or a fine arts restorer like her. Not that it mattered. He was there to witness tragic history in the making. So he squeezed his hand and then released it. She walked away, shoulders rounded against the sudden chill of the morning.
0: Thank you. And That was Bryn Turnbull reading from The Paris Deception. Were there... So Sophie and her brother Dietrich were born and raised in Germany and they were not Jewish, but they fled because they disagreed or particularly Dietrich just despised what the Nazis stood for. Yes. Is this common? Did this happen very much? I mean, it seems, you know, you look at, you even look around at the world today and, and how people get sucked into sort of nationalistic fervor and how mm-hmm. hard it may be to resist that if everyone around you is is buying into that belief system so mm-hmm. did it happen did, were there young people like Dietrich and Sophie who just said no I'm not I'm not doing this I'm leaving
2: yeah, yeah, there were. And and there were young people who did stand up within Germany itself mm-hmm. against Hitler's regime, and they paid the ultimate price for it. Um, there were two students, a brother and sister, whose name I'm very unfortunately blanking on, uh, who were who were murdered, who were executed by the Nazis for standing up against the Nazi regime and for speaking out against it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a, a, as you very rightly mentioned, it is easy and and we are seeing it today, people getting swept up in kind of nationalist fervor. And so that was something that I did want to explore in Sophie and Fabi, uh, Sophie and Dietrich's character. I wanted to look at what happens when you know to the core of your being that what is, what you're being taught is wrong. How do you get out of it? And how do you, um, you know, how how do you move past it? And I don't think Sophie ever really does. I don't think Sophie and Dietrich ever truly move past it and it shapes them it shapes who they are um you know one of the things that i i really wanted to look at in this book is what does resistance look like on an individual level what does resistance look like for someone who maybe can't join up with the resistance formally like we all like to think of course we would join the resistance and we would know that it was wrong and you know we would know that what was happening was wrong And we would we would fight against it with the core you know everything we had to offer but that wasn't you know, that wasn't something that everybody could not, could do. So what did resistance look like individually? What did it look like if you were resisting in your own mind and you were doing what you could in your own sphere of influence? And so with Sophie, particularly, that's what drives her is this notion that she knew and she, she's been fighting against this horror from the get-go. And she has paid the ultimate price for it uh, in her own way.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
2: uh, it's, it's just
0: hard. Yeah. Like you say, everyone thinks that if I were there, if I had been there, I would have fought, I would have, I would have done the right thing, but how many really did and, and how, and would you really, mm-hmm. would how hard it actually is to, mm-hmm. to go against everything that you believe. I mean, you, you make this very, you to really. go against this, your family in some exactly, cases. Exactly. And in this, and in in this character's case you know their father and mother originally were not in favor of not, of hitler and or they did not subscribe to these beliefs and yet they got swept up in it they got convinced
1: mm-hmm.
0: because if they didn't he would lose his job you know they were they were doing it for self
1: protection preservation
2: for, yeah exactly yeah it's easier you know it's easier to succumb than to resist I think in a lot of cases yeah. and I mean you know in the in the in the case of Sophie's parents as well it, I wanted to also look at how how people that age did get swept up in it and you know in in their case in the case of so many Germans who had lived through the first world war the first world war left Germany in a terrible state and so I I think you know for these people it was well he's offering us better than what we had and hunger is a very motivating factor right desperation is a very motivating factor and i think that that is that is how a lot of people got swept up into it unfortunately it, exactly exactly
1: um mm-hmm. but it's it's crowd mania too i mean you yes. know that, that starts and and i i had this professor in in college in in um World History, he was the lecturer, and he was a German Jew. And he said that he was in a crowd of people, and Hitler was talking to them. And he said he, he started screaming, kill the Jews. And he said, I was a Jew, and I, I wasn't doing that because I was afraid not to do it. I was just swept away. He said, Hitler was that
2: mm-hmm. – he
1: was was really something. That persuasive. So, yeah. That's chilling.
0: Uh, yes. Yeah. And it's amazing, Mom, that you actually – talk to somebody who was there (laughs) and you know you Mm -hmm. actually knew somebody who was there yeah i know listen to that wow so bryn how did you did you always know you wanted to be a writer and how did you choose historical fiction
2: i always always have been a writer um my parents would tell you that I was making up stories from the time I knew what stories were. Um, (laughs) But I never thought that it was an actual career option. Right. Like (laughs) I remember thinking like, Oh, that's like being drafted to the NHL. Nobody ever actually gets published. Um, So I, I initially resisted it for a long time. You know, I, I was like, Nope, I have to have my like real career. I've got to, you know, go and sit in a cubicle and have the desk job and every single desk job that I had, I, I, hated it. It was not for me. Uh, it's a great life for many people, but that was not for me. And, um, and my parents kept saying to me, you should be a writer. Like you, you, you're a writer, you're a writer. So <laughs> live your dreams. And I go, no, nah, nobody ever actually gets published. And I ended up, I was working one of these desk jobs and I came across the character, Telma Fernandez, who became the protagonist of my first book. And basically, she wouldn't leave me alone. Um, I'd go into the office and I'd be thinking of Telma and I'd be kind of figuring out in my head. I'd be drafting the story and I'd be writing, you know, emails to myself that were actually chapters of the book. And <laughs> oh oh yeah, oh yeah. it got to the point where I thought, OK, I, I need to do something with this for real, because I'm spending more time thinking about it than I'm thinking about the actual job. And so I went to my parents and I said, "Okay, guess what? I think you were right. I'm I'm going to write a book." And they said, "Finally! What took you so long? Fantastic news!" <laughs> and I was really, you know, I, I worked really hard and and I was incredibly fortunate in that this book, my first book, got picked up quickly. And I've been, you know, I've been writing ever since. And I'm on to I'm on to number four now that I'm working on it. And, and I just I am so so conscious of how incredibly fortunate I am to be able to tell these stories of, you know, of these characters that, um, that fascinate me. And then, you know, in terms of historical fiction specifically, one of the things that really draws me, and I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned it in the, in the intro is the stories of women caught in the cracks of history. And I think one of the things that draws me to historical fiction and, and I think draws a lot of authors to historical fiction is the fact that, you know history for the vast majority of recorded time has been written by the victors, and the victors have been men and I think historical fiction allows us an opportunity to insert women 's voices back into that historical record and i and i really I really find myself drawn to that, drawn to being able to tell women's stories and um, and tell these stories of a historical time that we might think we know, but from that from that different perspective,
0: I never really thought of it that way, but that's that's very true. Maybe that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons I love reading historical fiction. It is often centered on the on the women, yeah, yeah, and these stories that happened that you know things that people did that we never heard about we never we never learned them in school, they're not in the textbooks there's a few you know there's a few women's stories in the texts tiff- but so few that's so few yeah wow mm-hmm. wow um what about that original character um the woman before wallace what was it specifically about her that intrigued you so much
2: So Thelma Furness, she was uh, she was an American socialite and she was uh, mistress to the Prince of Wales in the 1930s. Uh, Her husband was the wealthiest man in Britain at the time, but she had this long four year long affair with Edward VIII prior to him becoming Edward VIII. And, you know, Edward VIII, the thing that everybody knows about him is he gave up the throne for Wallace Simpson. But what people don't know is the reason Edward and Wallace got together was because Thelma introduced them. And she left Edward in Wallace's care, very trustingly, um, when she went to support her sister in a custody battle in the States. And so with that book, that was the genesis of my interest <laughs> in her was... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. She, she took Wallace Simpson out for lunch at the Dorchester Hotel in in, Paris, er, in London and said, Edward is going to be very lonely. I'm going for six weeks. Edward's going to be very lonely with, it, with me. Gone. Will you look after him for me? And Wallace reached across the table and said, of course I will, darling. Absolutely. You have nothing to worry about. <laughs> uh, six oh weeks later. God. Wow. And so, and, and, and I mean, you know, Telma, I, I, so I was watching a movie, I directed by Madonna, actually. I was watching this movie and she, uh, it's about Wallace and Everett. It's called WE and she references Thelma in it very glancingly. And she referenced that conversation. And I thought that is the weirdest request I think I've ever heard. What is the story behind that? And that took me down a, a rabbit hole to this woman who is a footnote in the historical record, but who literally gave, like she pushed Everett and Wallace together and that changed the course of the British Royal family. Right. Yeah. When Queen Elizabeth yes. was put yeah. on the throne because yeah. her because Edward's brother took over. Right. That changed yeah. the course of history, and it, people don't know her name. Or didn't. Uh,
0: no. Yeah. And whatever. <laughs> ha- what happened to her
2: after that? So she so she left Edward for these six weeks to support her sister in this custody battle. Her sister, Gloria, married into the Vanderbilt family, and her husband died very unexpectedly and shortly after their marriage and left her with a daughter, Gloria Vanderbilt and Gloria Vanderbilt was the subject of this custody battle. Um, in 1934, she was known as the poor little rich girl. And of course this is Gloria Vanderbilt fashion designer. Um, you know, who didn't have a pair of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans in their closet. <laughs> um, and also the mother of Anderson Cooper. So Thelma goes and supports her sister through this custody battle. Uh, her sister loses And when she comes back to England, she goes out for a, she goes for a weekend away with Edward and Wallace and Wallace's husband and a whole bunch of friends. And she noticed, uh, Wallace slap Edward's hand away from a piece of lettuce that he picked up with his fingers. And Wallace slaps his hand away and she realized, okay, this is, that is a level of intimacy that something's going on there. And she packed her bags and she left and she went back to the States and lived with her sister. And yeah. But you said she was married. So what about her husband? They divorced. Oh, yeah. um, they divorced during, while well, during uh, Telma's relationship with Edward.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. They got divorced. Okay. Yeah. Wow.
2: But he left her with quite a, decent settlement. So she was comfortable for the rest of her life. But uh, <laughs> seconds, she kind of swore off men after Edward.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, OK. So what <laughs> I'm really curious about, which I sh- maybe should know, but how did Gloria Vanderbilt's mother lose custody of her to and to whom?
2: So she lost custody of little Gloria to uh, her husband's sister, Gertrude Whitney, Gertrude Payne Whitney, who is an artist um, and of course of Vanderbilt so very very well off and the reason Gloria lost custody was because she was viewed as an unfit mother um this it was a really horrible mudslinging trial but she, you know she would have parties and they worried that she was spending little gloria's inheritance um in a in a very bad way but what it really centered on was gloria had had an affair with a woman and oh. that was the that was the real reason for this court trial. They dressed it up in other terms, but it was because Gloria was uh, involved with a woman not a Milford Haven. Oh, wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Which in 1934 was quite
0: scandalous. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Writers Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our guest today is Bryn Turnbull, author of The Paris Deception. Bryn, another kind of area that you had to Know a lot about or learn a lot about to write about it in the Paris Deception is making champagne and growing grapes. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> give us a little a little history on that. How you how you learned about it and um, how it fits into the book.
2: Yeah. So you know, writing a book where a character writing a book about an art heist essentially one of the things you have to figure out is where are the characters going to take all of this art that they are stealing out of this museum where are they going to put all of these originals so that they'll be kept safe until the end of the war and i settled on the idea of a champagne house Um, in the champagne region a champagne house that was particularly down on its luck um that was kind of falling apart and that was the family seat of fabian our art forger Um, and she has vowed never to step foot back in that Champagne house. She's cut off ties with her mother, her father, and her um, ex-fiancé, who is still living at the Chateau, who's the winemaker there. Um, She's vowed to never see them again, but she gets pulled back into their orbit because she needs a place to safeguard, to stash all of this, um, all of this art until the end of the war. So, Mm -hmm. I, I wanted it to be in Champagne because I had learned through the course of my research about the Second World War, I had learned that Champagne was actually a hotbed for resistance at the time. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting, right? All of these big Champagne houses. And I mean, we're talking Champagne that's still in production today, that's still celebrated today. Uh, Mouet-Chandon, um, uh, Bollinger, all Champagne houses that during the Second World War were active in the French resistance. Uh, so I wanted to kind of tie in that resistance narrative a little bit in this book. Um, so I, I went to Champagne um, and I, oh, you I poor learned thing. all about. You had to go there I know. to
0: research. Oh, how, what a hard, I mean, some Monica, hard job, but somebody things, has to do it. <laughs> the things I do
2: for my readers.
1: Monica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so
2: I ended up, yeah, I ended up in champagne, um, you know, buzzing around the champagne houses. I went into Tattinger's wine case, which are unbelievable. And yeah, I learned all about the champagne harvest because, I mean, this character, again, y- you give characters these backstories and then you realize, oh, that backstory needs a lot of research, right? Like she knows how to make champagne. She's a champ- from a champagne producing family. She knows all about it, and so I had to know all about it, which is wonderful. This is why I'm very good at, like, a pub trivia night. Oh, Got all bet. of these weird little pockets <laughs> of random facts that are in the book. <laughs>
0: That's so fun. Um, yes. Yeah, and, and you know, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but, but I was very, um, you know, what she learned about what was going on in the area. And, you know, because she thought she had no idea, Fabienne had no idea that, that they were so no. involved in the resistance. She thought it was just her.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, that's, you know, that comes back to this notion of individual resistance, right? Right. Um, all All these people who are doing what they can within their own sphere of influence and not necessarily knowing what anybody else is doing because they're just working on their own, saving their own little piece of, of France, saving their own little piece of their world. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And
2: mm-hmm. you don't know also what the little
0: bit that you do, what influence it could have, you know, how that could be a, it's just a little brick in a huge wall. And mm-hmm. so you do do what you can, even if you think, well, I can't do much. You do what you can
2: to make the world a better place. You can do You can do something. You can do something. I mean, I've got um, a very, very dear friend of mine. His grandfather was safeguarded during the war by a Dutch family. And he's here today because one family decided to do the right thing. You know, Mm -hmm. wasn't a coordinated resistance effort. It was one family who decided to do the right thing. And think about the effort. Think about the impact of that brick in, in a very large wall, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: So, Bryn, it sounds like when you're writing that you are researching and writing kind of simultaneously. Is that true?
2: A li- yeah, I mean, I, I do kind of a big, big block of research prior to the book itself. Like, I know what the time period is, and that's where I deep dive into sort of like a month-by-month timeline of what's going on socially, politically, economically, um, culturally. To have kind of the the whole backdrop of what my characters would know and kind of what they're playing against how do you and, how do you organize that timeline uh in uh, it's in a program called Scrivener, um, which is the greatest thing in the world because my first book I didn't have it, <laughs> and so I had this timeline in little post-it notes on my wall for months, which was not fantastic. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, it's so so I do like the big research and I figure out my characters and I figure out what they need to know and kind of like the big stuff. Um, and then from there, every chapter, I'm doing more research because it's all the little details, I think, in historical fiction that are so impactful and that make such a difference. Right. Knowing right. what, you know, <laughs> knowing how a telegram goes across the ocean Um having that little bit of detail, knowing whether a, a telephone is hardwired or plugged into a wall, stuff like that is that's where I get, like, I love looking into all that minutia. Um, and you know, I think it's impossible to get it all right, but, uh, but the internet helps. I, I find it fascinating. The internet, <laughs> Thank goodness for the internet. Yes, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah.
2: And subject matter experts are, are wonderful.
0: Yeah. How do you find them on the internet? <laughs>
2: Sometimes. Through honestly, a lot of it's through friends um, ah. i I think I, one of the one of the phrases that i I love best is i like one of the phrases that I find opens a lot of doors is I'm an author and and when people when you're talking to people and they you know and you're writing about their specific sphere of influence, people can become so incredibly generous with their knowledge. Mm. And they share it because, you know, like like with this book, with with art conservators, having these art conservators walk me through their labs for a day was the most incredible and generous thing. And it made the book so much better. And yeah, I mean, I I think being able to share that knowledge is just such a wonderful thing. And, And now I'm I'm able to share what art conservation is with a broader audience as well. And, you know,
0: how great is that? That yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you're going along and you come across, you know, more details that you find you need, and you go, you go look for those. And at what point mm-hmm. do you know you've got enough? You never know you've
2: got enough. <laughs> <laughs> you never know you've got enough. The the issue I find is it's no, it's never. Do I have enough? Because I literally could research all day every day. It's at what point am I researching for the book? And what point am I researching for procrastination? (laughs) Good point. That for me is the difference. It's when I start realizing, okay, I'm not, I'm I'm procrastinating here. And I feel like I'm being useful because I'm looking up whatever it is I'm looking up. I've gone down the rabbit hole of, you know, methods of transportation. If you're using a donkey (laughs) or whatever, (laughs) you know, At some point you kind of have to look at it and be like, okay, no, you have to get words on the page. (laughs) Just go. And what's
0: your writing process like in terms of when you're, when you are actually sitting down and getting the words on the page, are you, uh, do you write, do you have set time of day? Do you set number of hours? You're writing a set number of words.
2: What's you have a place that you'd like to be or. I do, you know, I, I do have my, my little rituals I'd say, but I, you know, this is my nine-to-five job, so I treat it like my nine-to-five job. Um, you know, I get up, I sit at the de- desk, and off I go. Um, I write best in the morning. That's my best time of day um, when I get the most words on the page, and then afternoons I usually am editing whatever I dumped in the morning kind of thing. Um, so that's big for me. In terms of, like, a writing place, I, I don't set, like, a word count or anything. It's just, like, I, I like to get a scene done during a day. Like, if I can do one scene a day, that's good for me, whether that scene's 500 words or 4,000. Like, (laughs) it just depends on the day. Um, But I do have, like, my places where I like to write. I'm currently up at my family cottage uh, in the Great Lakes, and this is my, like, happiest writing place. I get the most work done up here because, you know, I wouldn't say that there are no distractions because there's always, like, a screen that needs to be hammered in or something. But uh, (laughs) there are fewer distractions than in the city, that's for sure. Wow.
0: Um, when you when you started writing your first book, you mentioned you went to your parents and I I thought that was really funny because a lot of authors, their parents have the are, opposite, experience. have the opposite experience. Their parents, you, you need a regular job. That's, you know, so it's so funny that yours were always encouraging you to do this. Now, did that mean you quit your day job and work started writing or were you doing
2: both simultaneously for a while? So I quit the day job because I was like, I need to give myself time to do this properly, but I still hedged my bets because what I did was I applied to do a master's in creative writing. So I thought Uh. to myself, okay, I'm going to give myself a year. And at the end of the year, I will decide whether, like, I may not have the full book, but I will be able to determine whether this is something I can pursue or something that I can put off to the side. But I wanted to have something in my back pocket so that if I had to go back to that day job, I would have something to show for a year's worth of effort, even if it wasn't a finished book. It was like I have a piece of paper that says she was doing something. She wasn't just like <laughs> sitting in front of her television for yeah. a year. <laughs> um, so and I did that, and then sorry, go ahead. And where did you where did you get your master's then? Uh, the University of St Andrews in Scotland. All right. Oh wow. Yeah, because well, because. Yeah, it was wonderful because you know, Telma was based in the UK for the book, so I wanted to spend time there, and it was such an interesting. I mean, the educational aspect was phenomenal, but there was like a social education, a little bit like a cultural education that came into play because like Telma was involved in the upper echelons of British society, and and St Andrews is quite a uh, proper posh. There, there are there are <laughs> quite some posh people at St Andrews, and so. You know, I show up and I'm this, you know, middle class, happy-go-lucky Canadian. And, you know, I show up and people were inviting me to play champagne pong, not beer pong, champagne (laughs) pong. And like going to like the picked up polo matches on the beach. And, you know, we've got this black tie ball and that black tie ball. And so I feel like it kind of. It gave me an appreciation for what Telma must have felt because Telma was like a middle class American who marries into this high society. So it gave me a fish out of water experience that I don't think I would have had if I'd just been writing it uh, from my home in Toronto.
0: Oh, how fun is that? How fun is that? And Mm. we only have like a minute left, but real quickly, how did you find your publisher?
2: um through my wonderful agent um and how did you get your agent (laughs) I know that's the next question I so what I did was I went to um when I was ready to send the book out I took the New York Times bestseller list found all of the authors that had hit it for historical fiction for the I think it was like a five year cross-referenced who (laughs) their agents were and I went to the agent who represented the most uh, the most historical fiction authors uh and she took me on which was incredible kevin lyon she's wonderful wow so basically you researched it (laughs) yeah i i I money balled it yeah
0: Well, congratulations and the Paris Deception. I, I was talking about this interview on a on a meeting this morning and I think I've already got you a couple new readers. So Thank you. <laughs> so it's it's a wonderful book. I've really enjoyed it. Caroline, do you have some final words for us today?
1: Yes, I do. Actually this you know, I don't know what they're teaching in school now about this this part in history, but they better be telling the truth because it starts with silence and then it grows silence from those who are too unwilling to accept what's happening it can't happen to me it won't happen to me but then you look down and yeah it did happen to me and that can happen again so we we have to be vigilant we have to watch what we're doing
0: yeah agreed and books like this can help bring
1: they can bring it to
0: people's attention and, and history we have to learn from history we Mm -hmm, must mm
2: -hmm.
0: well thank you absolutely thank you Caroline and see you all next week on Writer's
2: Voices thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure